But right from the get-go, I had a problem here. The very opening scene of the film, technically is well framed, well shot, in the sense that it has a big reveal, if you will, certainly to the audience in the film. Mozart, none other than Wolfgang Amadeus, is quite a showboat on stage. He's, he's conducting, he's performing, he's a superstar, right? And as he's performing on stage before this well-dressed audience, to, 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 it should go without saying, it's, it's an aristocratic audience, some guy walks down the aisle and you see him from the back. And you would think initially, well, for whatever reason, this guy's going up on stage. And then you get the reveal of, you know, the facial close-up and, and it's, oh, you know, it's the Chevalier. And he then is going to challenge Mozart so what, what in, in, in jazz, we would call it cutting contest. You know, if you're woodshedding and, and somebody plays a solo and you play a solo and you go back and forth, they might as well have like electric guitars plugged in, right? As they go, as they, rather than violins, as they go back and forth here. Now, dramatically, that works well, I suppose, but here's the problem. In real life, Mozart and the Chevalier never met. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the movies Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and Chevalier. We're going to start with the very long titled Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Mike. Now, I'm sure you didn't have the same experience I did, which is that when I was 11, 12 years old, this book was all anybody ever talked about it. I just remember how big this well, Judy Bloom in general, but this book in particular loomed. So when I, I was very excited to go see this. And one of the things I immediately liked about it was how well they rendered the 70s because every detail was just so on point. I mean, the furniture and the clothes and even the Corel ware in the dishwasher. I'm pretty sure we had those plates. So Mike, I'll give you a chance to, um, you know, tell our listeners how you felt going in to see this movie. I have eaten off of those same Corel plates <laughs> and we still have some in the family I'll share with you. Um, to date, all of us, the novel by Judy Bloom came out in 1970 and it has been a fan favorite for generations, particularly of young women. And the thing is, when I went to see the movie and I, I had not as a young lad, I had not read this novel, but but I was aware of all of it, of course. And, and you know, I've read a lot about Judy Bloom, if not actually reading her. So I know the cultural importance, basically. When I went to see the film in a theater, first of all, I was impressed that the theater was able to fit the title on the marquee. It, <laughs> it, it actually is one of the longest film titles I've encountered in a long, long time. It's, it's really kind of awkward that way. I, I don't even want to say it out loud or we'd be out of time on the show, you know. So so there it is. But that's where if you're going to have fidelity to the novel, you, you go that way. And Marie makes the point that, yes, it is a really faithful adaptation. Judy Blum had said no to a number of people over the years who wanted to make this as a movie for her own reasons, not trusting it, whatever. She finally said yes to this team, and thank goodness. And she said how, how pleased she is with the film. She's now 85 years old, actually. She lives in Key West and runs a bookstore. So if you want to see her, just, I've been to Key West, but not for that reason. But, you know, take the, the highway across the, the islands and, and you can you can visit Judy Bloom. But she really has been pleased with this film. And I was pleased too, actually. I think it's a really enjoyable film. One reason being, even though I haven't read the novel, I'm happy to, not happy to confess, but willing to confess, even though I haven't read the novel, I know it's faithful and any number of fans have said that, right? So I can trust all that. Number two, as Marie said, the, the period detail is spot on. And so again, so not just for viewers of a certain age, but for any viewer, you kind of like being immersed in a period piece. Yes. And it kind of, I cringe as I say this, this qualifies as a period piece now. Double entendre. Yeah, we can, we can be nostalgic over it, over it that way. 
And, and I think it really captures uh, that quality of, of, of adolescence as, as one enters into adolescence. And so, again, obviously, it's, it's pitched primarily, I would say, at young women, girls becoming women. But gosh, everyone goes through the equivalent in a way, right? We're all at that moment in life. So I think it registers very well. I got to say, quite honestly, when I went to see it in a movie theater, uh, so first I saw the title up there, and yes, they got every word in, even the question mark, everything got in. But when I got into the theater, here's what struck me. I was one of the few men in the audience. And, and I can live with that. I'm comfortable with that. I wasn't an anxious over that. But what struck me was I thought, well, this will be the ideal mother-daughter date. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, any woman who grew up in the decades since then will want to take her daughter to it and introduce her to the novel and then the film, Perfect Date. What I saw, though, I did see a little bit of that. What I saw more was the couples, the couples in this case being middle-aged women who would have read the book when they were girls. And this, this is like, you know, the gal pal date, right? And they, they were going to, and I, being an eavesdropper professionally, I was listening to comments on the way out. And so many of the women were, were saying things like, that was so good. I remember that from the novel on and on. And I, it was a kind of gushing moment where it's good to gush sometimes that it was just a really enjoyable film. It was true to the literary source. So the academic in me is pleased. All, all those things uh, kind of made me smile too. And I think it's extremely well acted. It's in the casting, really, in, in terms of the girl, in terms of her relatives and so on. It's really, really smartly realized and gives a sense of what New York City and suburban New Jersey and so on, what it would have been like at the time. In fact, one of the things that made me laugh out loud during the film was it, it begins with the family living in New York City. And she's a city kid. And we can talk some more about this, how much she's part of the urban fabric. And like the father gets a promotion, but they have to move to the suburbs. Well, the suburbs are only northern New Jersey, so you can almost see the skyline. But still, it's it's New Jersey. So when this girl prays to God, and that's some of the funnier stuff when she's praying to God for one thing or another. And one of her prayers is, please don't let New Jersey be too horrible. <laughs> and, and you can imagine from her perspective, I mean, if you're uprooted at that age, particularly your friends at school, all that is gone. You only have your grandmother back in the city, I guess. And it's just it's a strange new world that she's in. She goes from the city to the suburbs. And enough people probably could relate to that in a generational way. Well, I definitely could because we had just moved when I you know, was introduced to this book. So everything in about in everything about the book rang true to me at the time. And I should tell people listening that the reason for the title is not only is Margaret going through puberty, uh, which makes it, as you put it so succinctly, Mike, a, a great period piece. It's also about <laughs> her, her spiritual journey in that she's basically an atheist. But she's been introduced to the idea of God. So she that's why she's saying, are you there, God? Oh, it's me, Margaret, because she is questioning that part of things, too. So it's, it's more it's a coming of age story in more ways than one. What struck me, I had the same experience as you did, Mike. I don't think there were any men in, in the audience when I went. It was full of women my age. And I went to see it with my sisters, in fact. And we were just picking up on so many things like my sister and I just looked at each other at one point and we both at the same time said bobby pins just the the dorky bobby pins there were just so many elements that we related to that they just got so right pitching it to that audience of older women who have seen it now i've told people how much i enjoyed it and they've said oh that's so great because my i think my daughter would like to see it so i think i'm going to take her to see it i think it's a movie you go to see twice once you go see with all of your friends and then you take your daughter or you go with your daughter and then you realize you have to go back with all of your friends. 
do you know what you're saying that's so accurate is, and it's not just that it's a really enjoyable film and true to the source, et cetera, but the fact that it is the kind of film that, that you would want to watch again with, with other people in your life. And that's not always the case. There's some movies you, you really love, and if you watch them again, you're fine by yourself late at night watching it, right? This is one, I think, where you would want to have other people around you. Uh, in your case, like the cohort, uh, like sort of a sibling cohort, uh, you know, with the sisters, that's the perfect audience. And, and I, I, you know, I, I went to see it, and I didn't have any bobby pins on me, so it wasn't like <laughs> I was... I wasn't connecting quite quite that way, but it would be a case where you'd want to sit down and watch it. And I would say, like, like watch it again, like, you know, a few months or a year later, even. It has that kind of lasting value. In the same way that you would pick up, and I know how popular she is as a novelist, the fact that you'd read one of her books before, that doesn't prevent you from picking it up again, right? You really enjoy that. And it's no longer at the level of plot points. You know what happens when she goes from New York to Jersey. And you watch it at that point because of the familiarity of it. Not just that you recognize the scenes, but it's really deeply satisfying because you went through these things at a certain age and you know and it's it's revisiting all of that that's a really immensely pleasurable experience to, to revisit it that way and there's nothing jarringly wrong in the film i'm getting at like we like to nitpick like well i like this and not that it really it's an even keel film it, it really hits a certain tone and it, it's consistent that way now one thing that i do not remember about the book although i know for a fact that it's in there i don't remember caring about any of the characters except for margaret and her friends but watching the movie, I very much related to Rachel McAdams' character, Margaret's mom. And I know she was a factor in the book. I know that's the case, but I don't remember it. All I cared about when I was reading it was the characters who were my age. And of course, watching it as an adult, I'm, you know, relating to the mother. And Rachel McAdams is wonderful in this. I, I like her most of the time anyway, but she does a great job as Margaret's mom. And Kathy Bates as the grandmother, hysterical. You know what? You know what I like so much about Kathy Bates here is, I mean, she, I mean, as an actor, I've admired her, but she can be a showboat, right? And mm -hmm. it's partly the character she plays, but just the personality. What I liked about her is she is the paternal grandmother. She's the anchor in New York City, if you will. She's a very urban person that way. She's very outspoken and so on. What I like so much about Kathy Bates' performance here is that she makes it a, a you know, a broadly comic performance as it should be, but she stops short of caricature. And this is a, that's a character, boy, it wouldn't take much, would it, to have it like nope. slip into that, like, like live action cartoon kind of thing. And, and, and there was a degree of, at least relatively speaking, restraint here. Now, as we're talking about characters, let me ask you this, because you know the novel really well, and I only know it in a secondhand way. One thing I've read is that there are some differences between the book and the film. And one that has been singled out is the fact that, as for so many of us at that age, there will be the teacher who makes a difference, the influential teacher. And of course, for Marie and, 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 and me, you know, the two of us, we're always thinking about it. We're patting ourselves on the back like we can be that teacher for somebody. But on screen, there's a character... Mr. Benedict, played by Echo Kellum, who, who's the, the, the guy who does that, who gives her some confidence and, and, you know, she's coming into her own in various ways. The fact that he's a Black teacher in the film, that has been pointed out in some of the commentary as a difference from the book. And, and, and the reason I harp on that is, and I usually don't harp on, on, on race per se, but, but here I will in the sense that it seems to me that, and you've got to correct me on this quickly, it seems to me that the film makes a, a point of not just that he's the influential teacher, but it's a black guy at the front of the classroom, the, you know, wh white girls, if you will, sitting out there and the impact he has. Here's why I may be going out on a limb. It seems to me that in, in the film, to make it more relevant or, or more directly connecting to a contemporary audience, 
to have the race of the teacher perhaps be different than, than what it was in the book. And again, I got to be careful because I don't know the book really. But, but Marie, what's your, correct me on this and, and set me on the right path. My sense is that it's one of the, it's, it's a very much a period piece as a film, but that's one of the things within the film that I think plays or is meant to play to an audience in 2023, that he's the guy who's going to make a difference. And it totally works thematically. So I'm not pointing it out like it's jarring or anything. Not at all. It actually works very well that there's this male figure at the front of the room. And yes, it's a black guy. And, and these are things that that bring her into an adult world, if you a world of difference, right? You think about, you know, the insularity in some ways of her family, but to take her into that larger world. What do you think of that? You know, you raise a really good point, And I'm afraid that my answer is going to be strictly anecdotal of my own experience. The character is not defined that way in the book. But I'll say this, when I was watching the movie, my sister sitting next to me, as soon as he came on the screen, I looked there and I said, look, it's Mr. Clinkscales, because she had a guidance counselor who was a black man right around, you know, when she would have been this age. And in fifth grade, I had my very first male teacher ever, Mr. Watkins. So I sort of, I don't know, it, it just, I understood it in my own life in a way that really wasn't in the book. Does that make sense? If Mr. Watkins is watching, hello, <laughs> we, we remember you after all these years. But, you know, joking aside, you're making a good point there. That's the age where one reason why a teacher can be so influential is it, it's an authority figure other than your parents. You know what I mean? It's somebody and, and I'm not presenting this like it's the heavy, but the opposite, actually. Someone who is, you know, wise and nurturing and all those, you know, warm and fuzzy things is really good to you. And it's also where the, as the world opens up, that's the age where when you go to school, you meet people of other races, other religions just other backgrounds, it does open up a whole new world to you. So again, not knowing the novel, I can't speak to fidelity in that respect to that degree. But I do know in the film how well that works, because you just see her looking around the classroom, the, the girls were all new to her out in the suburbs, but then the teacher at the front of the room. So I think it's a real perk in the film, an advantage, actually, to have it be a, a man who's who's not white. And this is good, you know, <laughs> as it should be. And, and how, how readily they can bond, you know what I mean? That's the age where, you know, he cares for her as a student. And that's really, those are beautiful scenes, actually, where you can sort of see her growing up because she's at that age where, you know, uh, you're not quite a kid anymore. You're not, you're not really into the teen years fully. It's that tween age kind, kind of anxiety that she would be feeling. And he helps to make her feel comfortable. Also, I think it's very common in the lower grades to have female teachers and just have this sort of, I don't know, ultra mom sort of world where women are in charge of everything and you're used to learning from women and being cared for by women. And then you get into junior high school and high school or middle school, I guess they call it now in high school. And it is different to suddenly, you know, you're interacting with male teachers or teachers of a different background than you're used to. It's part of that bigger world that you're going to have to figure out how to fit into. And also feeling like, you know, you feel like you don't fit in at the same time. Because well, you're see, waiting that, for things to happen. To well, long you know, This is where it cuts across gender lines, because obviously there are going to be experiences specific, and she has particular anxieties that are specific to, to, to girls at that age. But again, the, the, the general anxiety we all have, because you are going from one phase of life into the next, and it gets marked differently, I realize, for, for, for girls and boys, but the commonality of, of the general experience and that uneasiness, particularly if you're going to a new school. Oh my goodness, you look around and you want, you want, you know, the, the peer pressure, you want to be part of the gang, part of the group. And she sort of goes through this too. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit more about this in terms of when you mentioned her friends and so on, or the new people she meets. The film is very, I say observational in this respect. You really get a sense of how Margaret is seeing this, you know, the, the kid, the kid next door kind of thing, like, 
who's your friend and what does it mean? And, and is she the same as you? And that, gosh, that involves so many matters of social class, religion, you name it. So pick up on this because I think that's where the film is actually quite strong. I agree. There, you know, there's so many things she has to do to fit in and belong with the group of girls that she's desperate to be accepted by. And one of them is to is to go buy a bra, which is one of the greatest scenes ever because her mom's trying to talk her out of it. And because she says, yeah, it's, it, you know, they're just kind of a pain. I mean, and then she finally tries one on and her mom asks, so how do you feel? And she says, I can't wait to take it off. And Rachel McAdams is like, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. It gets so many of those things right. But Mike, does this mar the movie in that it literally makes it into a chick flick? How many guys do you think would be interested in seeing the side of the fence? Well, I was just about the only guy watching it in, in, in the theaters. But, you know, if it's just a chick flick, that, well, that's more than half the population. So, you know, you have an audience there. I, but you may, you raise a very, very good point. How many guys will want to watch this? It may be a case of where where their, their girlfriends or wives drag them to it, whatever. Or you know, it's on the tube at home, so you sit and watch it. But you're right. It's probably not the first choice. Let's put it that way for, for a guy. And actually, by way of confession here, as I handed off to you just a few minutes ago, it's because I wanted you to describe the bra scene. It would have been, <laughs> it would have been extremely awkward for me. I would be like, well, weighing and sifting every word. What's the safest way to describe this? So I thought, let me just sit and smile and say, Marie, why don't you talk about those scenes? I'll also say that my sisters and I agreed that the fashions were very 1970s, but they were not dorky enough. There's a whole dorkiness to what makes it work. And I think they could have dorked more. They could have made her more of a dork. Because even if even if you're not a dork, you feel like one at that age. You just feel like nothing's right. Your skin feels like it's breaking out. Your hair always looks like it's dirty. Or you think it does. You're so self-conscious. They could have done more with that, I think. Yeah, I, th I think you're right there. E even though the film is so well done, I, I would actually harp on that a little bit as well. Because that is the age where... You look at your old photographs, and I try not to actually, like what we're wearing, and sometimes the clothes are still hidden away in the closet somewhere, like what we wore, what were we thinking kind of thing. What right? were we thinking? And our early 70s is sort of a low point from a fashion aesthetic standpoint. So there's that, all the synthetics, the rayon, all the stuff people were wearing. I won't even go there again. But also, Marie, to your point, I think that's the age of braces, of acne, of general dorkiness. And I think the film, not that we have to like go over the top with Margaret per se, because that might take it into caricature a bit, but you could have at least a few characters in the classroom who are like exhibit a for everything you've just described as a reminder mm -hmm. of, of why they're self-conscious <laughs> <laughs> i'm self-conscious talking about it in retrospect well like there should have been at least one boy at the school who looked like he was dressed like peter brady you know what I mean? <laughs> Imagine the auditions for that. Uh, you maybe you should talk there. There is the boy in the film. I mean, she does have a, a young man. Say some more about this, because, I mean, there are actually some, not just the, the gal pals. There's one young man in particular that might be a quasi friendship or, or boyfriend, girlfriend. Pick up on that, because that it's an interesting plot strand. Yes, because, of course, they're introducing the idea that, you know, once you go through puberty, you start becoming interested in the opposite sex. So, of course, there's a male character that is, you know, seen by the girls as attractive and, you know, well-discussed, et cetera. I didn't think that was actually fleshed out well enough in the movie. I think it, I think it's, again, even though I keep saying the film is well done and so on, there are some places where, yeah, we can take issue with it. This would be another one to take issue. The character's name is Moose, which is not a selling point for me particularly. He's called Moose. He's an older man. He's 14. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so in this world, he really is. I was intrigued by that as a plot strand. I think it's important to have that, actually. When you're just starting to think about boys and maybe not in an icky way, this could be someone. And, and she's really so shy and awkward around him. I liked all that. Where I would 
fault the film a bit. And I don't know, again, in terms of the novel, how this is handled, but in the film, his character kind of comes and goes. He's just, he doesn't get much screen time. And so even when he pops up again, it's like, yeah, I know who it is, but it's not fully developed really as a character. What do you think of that vis-a-vis -vis the source novel? And then also within the film, it's important to have that as a plot strand. I'm glad it's there, but it doesn't seem like it's fully realized. You know, the problem when you have, it's a beloved book, is that you have people in mind what they're supposed to look like. And for me, he was supposed to be that quintessential 14-year-old guy with, with the teen stash, you know, just starting to grow a mustache and it being like so impressive. But, you know, that isn't the way they decided to go with that. So he just looked wrong to me. I do want to say before we move on to the, another, the next movie that for anybody who is concerned about going to see this in terms of what you might see, there is no blood in any scene that is visible. You know, what's interesting, it's PG-13, but honestly, most of it just plays PG to me. And, and that's a compliment here. We see so many movies that are excessively violent or, or foul-mouthed, or you name it. And I'm, I don't want to sound puritanical here, but sometimes just for the sake of that, you know, to kind of juice the plot, to kind of get the audience to sit up and laugh or something. This is a film that because it's of that time and place and what the girls were like and so on, it's fine to have the language relatively restrained. It's fine to have it be a, a feel-good movie that way, even when she's feeling bad. And I, I respect that a lot in this film. In other words, if as a mother-daughter date, mothers can take their young daughters and not worry about having to cover the eyes or ears for a particular scene. But other films, I think, could have like pushed further that way, right? Whether they should or not, I think they would have. And this film has the smarts of being not just a film about that period, but oftentimes as if it were made in that time frame. You know I'm getting at? That it seems like it's really lifted from, from that early 70s vibe. Without going all the way full on ABC after school special. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because that's where it's like too programmatic. You know what I'm getting at? Where it just seems like, like you know, it's it just floats along and it has a message and, and you know, it's all well and good and all, but but nothing to, to write home about. Is that sort of what you're getting at? That it doesn't like push that way in an obvious way. I, I think it, it's because I oftentimes use that expression in a pejorative sense, the after school special. And and a lot of those have a worthwhile message, don't they? But it's almost like, well, here's your medicine for the day. You know, take this and you'll be a better person at the end of it. And sometimes in terms of the actual filmmaking or acting or, or, you know, pacing, those films are nothing special, are they? Oftentimes they just sort of get the job done. You feel like, okay, it was like a, a hallmark card of a movie, right? And right. This film, you know what I'm getting at? And this film avoids that pitfall to its credit. Okay, Mike, let's move on to our second movie, which is Chevalier, which I think of as Amadeus meets Bridgerton meets Bell meets Hamilton. What do you think? That, those are a lot of comparisons. This involves an actual historical figure, a Black composer and performer of the 18th century, known commonly as Joseph Bologna, but known as the Chevalier. He actually is somebody who, in more modern times, has been well-known, certainly to musicologists and to real classical music buffs and so on, not well-known at all to the general public. So this film has the didactic value of making him much better known. And think about what this character was up against, real-life character, simply because of his race. The fact that, you know, if you're living in Vienna, in the late 18th century, you're going to stand out in the crowd. You know, uh, he's, he's got the, the the white, the powdered wig and, and, the, and the outfit you'd expect for, for someone in that time, but the black face. And, and, and so in terms of race, it's quite striking just simply his sheer existence, his presence there. And moreover, that he's asserting himself as a performer in what is a lily white world, to put it mildly here. So that's to the film's favor, making him better known. Where I have problems with this film, where, where it actually is, for me, kind of vexing is this. When you're dealing with a real-life figure, 
you're going to have some creative liberties. You're going to have some creative license as to how you treat him on screen, you know, and, and I allow for that. I mean, it's a fictionalized depiction of a real life person. But right from the get go, I had a problem here. The very opening scene of the film technically is well framed, well shot in the sense that it has a big reveal, if you will, certainly to the audience in the film. Mozart, none other than Wolfgang Amadeus, is quite a showboat on stage. He's, he's conducting, he's performing, he's a superstar, right? And as he's performing on stage before this well-dressed audience, to, 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 it should go without saying it's, it's an aristocratic audience, some guy walks down the aisle and you see him from the back. And you would think initially, well, for whatever reason, this guy's going up on stage. And then you get the reveal of, you know, the facial close-up and, and it's, oh, you know, it's the Chevalier. And he then is going to challenge Mozart. So what, what in, in, in jazz, we would call it cutting contest. You know, if you're woodshedding and, and somebody plays a solo and you play a solo and you go back and forth, they might as well have like electric guitars plugged in, right? As they go, as they, rather than violins, as they go back and forth here. Now, dramatically, that works well, I suppose, but here's the problem. In real life, Mozart and the Chevalier never met. So it's a totally fictitious scene. And, and yet the, the audience never is informed of that. I mean, this audience, me, the guy watching it, we were never told that in the film. And even like in the end credits, you know, they'll have with a biographical pick like this, they'll have oftentimes, you know, some credit lines at the end in terms of what happened to the Chevalier, this and that historical notes, right? That would be the place where you might say, you know, certain elements fictionalized, nothing of the sort. There's nothing to indicate that. Here's where ultimately it doesn't work for me dramatically even, namely that in making the case for the Chevalier, it, he's the hero, it needs a villain. Who becomes the villain? Mozart. And the fact that like in, in that opening scene, not only does the Chevalier play much better and the audience responds to him, Mozart utters an expletive. In fact, it's the only one in the film. It's a PG-13 film. It's the only cuss word in the film. And Mozart says that and then storms off stage. So right from the get-go, this is a film that's so much on the side of the Chevalier that you're going to see him scene after scene showing up the crowd, this and that. Gosh, you know, it's kind of hokey after a while. It's, it's a kind of thematic overkill to have scene after scene work that way. The other major reservation related to that is the Chevalier was a polymath. He was brilliant in so many ways. He was a composer. He was a musician as in a performer. He was a fencer. You know, he had all these great skill sets. Uh, and the film does mention all those, but almost all the time in the film is spent on his romantic life. Now, in real life, he was quite the swordsman. He was quite romantic that way. So it's worth doing that. But the film takes a very conventional route, show him in these various love affairs and so on. And, and it's kind of down, not quite downplays, but doesn't give enough screen time to those other aspects of his talent. You know, it goes with that really commercial conventional route there. And in emphasizing the romance, it also, I think, is border, not just borderline fictitious, but pushes things like he would have had contact with Marie Antoinette, the, the, the queen at that time. But in the film, she's like the central figure and she's hanging around in all these scenes where it typically you wouldn't find a queen, but she's there for dramatic purposes that, that you know, as, as he's sort of like goosing the crowd and, and showing people up that she's like 10 feet away. In real life, there that was very unlikely that she would have been around for so much of that. But this is, again, where I think the, the scripting is overdetermined. What do you think? I could not agree with you more. I thought it was a cliche to focus on the relationships because we can assume that that would be the case. This is somebody so much more interesting than the what they what they put on the screen. So here's a quote from John Adams, our founding father. He described him as the most accomplished man in Europe in writing, running, shooting, fencing, dancing, music. See, that's a movie. I would have liked to have seen what somebody else could have done with this, like Jordan Peele or Spike Lee, because it doesn't take enough risks. It just seems like a movie you've seen before. 
it's beautiful to look at. I will say the costuming is fantastic. And some of the music is pretty good. But the story is, I hate to say it, it's just kind of boring. Considering the parentage of, of, of the Chevalier, it should be much more interesting. His father was a French plantation owner in Guadalupe. His mother was a Senegalese woman, so mixed race child there. And, and you do see those characters uh, briefly in the film, and it should somehow be much more engaging than it is. It's just terrific subject matter. I mean, just from the level of scripting, the, the promise in that. And it's just kind of it's just, uh, kind of dull in the way it plays out there. To the credit of the film, not that I give it much credit, but to the credit of the film, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who plays Joseph Bologna, who plays Chevalier, very well cast. He's actually quite charismatic as an actor. And I, th- I, th- I think he helps to salvage or save some scenes that otherwise might not work that well. And, and his presence alone, I think, oftentimes will carry a scene. What do you think? Yeah, I thought he was actually very good. I just wish they'd given him more to work with. I did want to mention that he practiced the violin seven days a week, six hours a day for five months to prepare for the role. And he does look believable. Well, I discussed the film with someone who is a uh, quasi-professional uh, musician, cellist in her case, but 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 you know, talking about the violin some, and and he did actually do all that practicing. And to me, he seemed convincing. She pointed out ways in which the fingering was was off and this and that, but that's where a professional musician will notice those things. For me, as somebody who loves that music but doesn't really know it as well as he should, to me, it didn't. I thought, yeah, I'm buying it. I'm convinced by it. So that's where the actor, I think, was able to pull it off because there are a lot of films. Think back in Hollywood history, you have a Hollywood movie star playing a classical musician, you know, she's at, sitting at the keyboard and that's where the camera cuts and you just either see hands playing like, like the stunt double, right? Or you get the close-up of the face above the keyboard. This film, I think, does have the temerity, actually, to its credit, to, to show you the performer in action. And, and yeah, I bought it. I thought those scenes actually played well. And, and, you know, again, it would be the classical musician, a real one, nitpicking with that. But hey, you know, I'm not, I'm the typical audience member there. I just want to, do I feel like this guy's really playing the violin? Yes, I do. I will say, though, I'm with you in that I think it's it's great that this movie was made so that more people will find out about this guy because he's extraordinary. But you know what the problem is? They'll find out some of the wrong things. In other words, mm-hmm. when you have a real life figure, you want him to be better known. But anyone who just watches a cold will say, ah, he, sh- he showed that Mozart, didn't he? You know what I mean? <laughs> and in other words, this is where it becomes a kind of falsified history. And it doesn't have to be. His life yeah, is it doesn't compelling have to be. without that. Yeah. It's it compelling without doing that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they took the easy way out, I think. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.